scripture passage this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull your Bible out and follow along with us. And there are a few blue Bibles scattered in some of the seats in front of you. Those are also for you, and you can take one if you don't own a Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. First Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the person's thoughts except the spirit of that person who is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. We pray once again, O oh Lord, for you to be working in power among us, comforting us, encouraging us honestly waking us up, shoot, rebuking us, if necessary, all of it by your grace for our good, our edification, for the good of this body, and for the good of our city that we find ourselves in. We love you, Lord, tremendously, and we expect great things of our time together in your word. Change us through the hearing and the application of your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Human beings are wired for transcendence, most importantly wired for a relationship with the transcendent God of the universe. That's how we're created. Thus, our fascination, as you know, with secrets and mysteries and hiddenness, because we gravitate toward that which is beyond us and unknown. There's an innocence to this fascination when we're young, growing up. I can remember being absolutely enthralled with the world of invisible ink. Both using the ink and, you know, to write secret messages and also assuming that secret messages were hidden in plain sight all around me. All I needed was a really powerful UV light and I'd be in business. I remember having entirely serious conversations with fellow 
nine-year-olds along the lines of, you know, hey, we could probably take over the world with this ink. And my friends were like, yeah, probably. We didn't succeed. <laughs> Although I don't want to disparage that ambition. If you're sitting here this morning and you're nine, you can be anything you want to be. As we, as we get older, I think the fascination actually pivots towards space. You know, a, a strange bird in which we can see it, in a sense, right? But in seeing it, we realize that there's so much that we can't see, so much that's actually hidden from view. And that makes it the perfect fodder for imaginative movies and shows, Star Wars and, and Star Trek and Interstellar and Jetsons the movie, all of that. And then as we get older still, our fascination can get rather strange and dark, especially if we're disconnected from our transcendent God. This might involve fascination with the occult, which is rising precipitously. In our day recently, saw, I saw an article from NBC News that described how witchcraft, which includes Wicca, paganism, folk magic, other New Age traditions, is one of the fastest growing spiritual paths in America. Or our fascination might have more to do with conspiracy theories, a fascination that is also rising precipitously in our day. Anecdotally, I see more fascination with the occult on the so-called left, for lack of a better term, and more fascination with conspiracy theories on the so-called right. But both have to do with trying to find hidden insights and therefore solid footing apart from God when we're living in unstable times. Well, guess what? We are talking about secrets today. We're talking about hiddenness, which means that all of us, in theory, should be absolutely glued to our seats from start to finish. No restroom breaks, no extra coffee, totally locked in. And here's the first secret. Ready for it? We're actually not really talking about secrets and hiddenness. We're mainly talking about hiddenness and secrets in the context of finding true wisdom, insight gained not by means of a UV light or folk magic or Reddit, but by means of something far, far more powerful, as we will see. So two questions this morning concerning the nature of true wisdom. Where does it come from? Isn't that the question of the ages? And then how do we get it? Where does it come from? How do we get it? Let's start with that first question. Where does true wisdom come from? If you've been following along with our First Corinthians series, at this point you may well believe that the Apostle Paul is anti-wisdom. But now we see that he's actually very much pro-wisdom as long as it's true wisdom. And he's pro-wisdom, both for the sake of defending his own ministry and, more importantly, for the sake of unifying the quarreling, factionalized church at Corinth that he helped start. Look at verses 6 and 7. Corinthians, you might assume that I'm against wisdom. But actually, the whole point of my ministry is to impart wisdom 
among the mature, which is a reference to all true Christians, not this elite tier of Christians. However, this is not a wisdom of this age, which means that it does not come from the rulers of this age, who, by the way, are doomed to pass away. Instead, verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom that comes from God which is what Paul means when he says it's wisdom of God. Wisdom that God decreed before the ages for our glory. A couple of Sundays ago in verses 18 through 25, we discussed the nature of this wisdom of the age, which for the Greeks or the Gentiles, same thing, in Paul's day had to do with human impressiveness in the realm of rhetoric in particular, eloquence, wittiness, persuasiveness, charisma, being philosophically profound, impressiveness determining status and value, which is horrifying when we think about it, but at the same time very much still alive and well in our day. Impressiveness in a worldly sense determining arrival, and therefore salvation. That wisdom comes from the rulers of this age, which verse 8 signals is at the very least a reference to those who are involved with crucifying the Lord of glory. That is Jesus. So we're talking Roman authorities like Pilate and religious authorities, and then more generally, any worldly leaders who reject Christ and possibly even demonic forces. We know that this cannot be true wisdom because, number one, these rulers are doomed to pass away, verse 6, which is a reference not just to death but to eternal ruin, which is the fate for all who reject Christ. And number two, these rulers were actually not all that wise. After all, case in point, they crucified the Lord. Whoops. And you can see that Paul is kind of lampooning that a little bit here. So where does true wisdom come from? It comes from the triune God of the universe. A secret and hidden wisdom that God decreed before the ages for our glory. Wisdom, therefore, hidden in plain sight, contained and foreshadowed, did you know this, in every page of Scripture, clearly overseen with purposeful sovereignty by the God of the universe. And if you don't believe me about this sovereignty business, try narrating major events in the Old Testament with a straight face using the phrase, as fate would have it. You know, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and then you know, as fate would have it, a bush caught on fire and it started talking to him. You know, and then one thing led to another, and the Israelites crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea. Yeah, right. Speaking of crossing through the Red Sea, that actually shows us quite a lot about the nature of true wisdom, as God defines it. And of course, he very much gets to define it if, in fact, it comes from him. The wisdom of God, and this is really important, has to do with his people crossing from slavery 
into freedom on account of divine intervention. Intervention catalyzed entirely by God's compassionate grace, owing nothing to the merit of the people being delivered, not to their impressiveness, not to their loveliness, not to their moral rectitude, not any of that, only owing to God. God saved the Israelites from slavery, not because they were better than everybody else or more impressive, see Deuteronomy chapter 7, but because of his grace, because of his compassion. And he saves us today from our slavery to sin on account of Christ, the Son of God, crucified, who frees those who repent of their sin and believe upon his name. Freedom given to us not on account of our impressiveness, but entirely in spite of it. This is the wisdom of God, which he decreed before the ages, patterned onto the pages of Scripture, culminating in Christ crucified in our place and raised. Wisdom decreed before the ages for our glory, that as a set-apart, sanctified people, remember verse 2 of chapter 1, he might present us with radiant and one day bring us into eternal glory when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Are you really hearing this? The God of the universe not only frees us, he does so in such a way that he presents us with more radiance and more beauty than even the most noble, selfless groom presents his bride on their wedding day. Christians are often accused of anti-intellectualism, sometimes justifiably so, when it seems as though we're creating false dilemmas that, that pit faith and science against each other, or when we're ignoring the very good work, academic or otherwise, of believers and non-believers, as if God and his Common grace can't use such work for the benefit of his people. But this wisdom that comes from God is, is nothing of the sort. Plenty of Christians, let me tell you, are very impressive intellectually, and they present their faith with very compelling acumen that nonetheless glorifies God, not themselves. And just this last week, I sat in on the doctoral defense featuring a brother in Christ from our own church family who made a rather brilliant presentation concerning his neuroscientific research. Praise God, you can be a wonderful scientist and a wonderful follower of Jesus and very much at the same time, not in silos. The thing that God's wisdom is anti is impressiveness as self-justification or impressiveness of somehow determining value or status in God's eyes. Christianity is strongly egalitarian in the sense that everyone is created in the image of God with the same intrinsic value, but also everyone is sinful and therefore has the same need for Christ. Church, where are we looking for our wisdom? Where are we looking for wisdom? 
from the wisdom of the age and the worldly gatekeepers of that wisdom, you know, from the modern prophets of our day, often celebrities and, and influencers, who very often, not always, but who very often promote self-focus and experiences and achievements as the wellspring of meaning and happiness. Is that where we're looking? Or are you looking to God? And the reason that I say church is that my goodness is an easy and honestly common to put our faith in Christ and then functionally live like unbelievers when it comes to how we think about ourselves and how we try to justify ourselves. In my pastoral estimation, not exaggerating here at all, the primary source of misery for Christians today is to believe the gospel on one hand, but then to effectively move on from it and then just plod through our days as if our worth is tied up in our academic accomplishments and our vocational status and what we own and our weekend trips and who we're friends with or how many burpees we did at the gym on Tuesday morning. all of which interferes with Christian generosity and hospitality and evangelism and ultimately our joy. Here's a, here's a fun little rhyme for you. You know I never do this, but it's a special occasion. It's homecoming weekend. I want to do something a little bit special. Special occasions call for special measures. The company you keep influences the wisdom that you seek. The company that you keep influences the wisdom that you seek. That's hot, isn't it? That's a nice, I should send, I should email that to Lecrae. <laughs> and not just people company. Our digital company matters too. A lot, statistically, a lot of American adults spend our downtime passively scrolling through social media, especially at night when we're too exhausted to do anything else. And when we do that, guess what pole of wisdom we'll be migrating toward? Not the wisdom of God. Unless you're on your Bible app and you're just scrolling through that. <laughs> Praise God if you are. Ready for some life-changing advice? When you're too tired to be doing anything else, just go to bed, okay? Go to sleep. <laughs> Forget the phone time and be blessed, right? Enjoy the company of your, of your pillow, I suppose. But Chipper, listen here now. How do we get this wisdom? Right? Didn't you say something about secrets and mysteries and, and hiddenness? If that's true, what's the use in looking for this wisdom? Because it's hidden, buddy. It's a great point. I can feel the anxiety rising in the room here, so that's the question we'll turn our attention to now. How do we get it? How do we get true wisdom? Look at verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
Verse 9, which is likely set off in your Bibles as a quotation, appears to be a reference to the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 4, which in its context refers to the mystery in the hiddenness of God's wonderful plan of salvation. And it turns out that this plan is so wonderful and mysterious that no one in Isaiah's day and no one now in our day can truly understand this plan by means of their own faculties. No one is smart enough. No one is gifted enough. Even if you think you get it, you don't actually get it without help. Before I got married, if you had asked me something along the lines of, hey, these, these clothes that you wear, are they good? I would have answered very confidently, yes, of course, they're very good. However, when I got married, my wife began to systematically replace every article of clothing that I owned. At first with a certain amount of resistance from me, but eventually without hindrance because I actually started to get some compliments concerning the clothing that she picked out. And now when I look back at pictures from like 13 years or so ago and farther back, right before we were married, it occurs to me that the clothes that I was wearing were not in fact good. I was wearing, no exaggeration, I was wearing billabong shirts from the 90s, basically, and cargo shorts. I really thought I had quality fashion sense, but I did not, and I needed help. So how do we get this help? Those who love God, which is a, a broad disposition here that involves putting our trust in Him and following Him. There's action involved. It's not just nice feelings about God. Those who love God, we get the Holy Spirit who lives in us and gives us insight concerning God's plan of salvation now revealed to us in Christ crucified the apex of God's redemptive plan, formerly hidden across the ages, is now made known to us in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And yet, even still, we cannot piece everything together without the Holy Spirit. Consider that all kinds of people knew about Christ's crucifixion in Paul's day and rejected Christ anyway including Paul himself for a season until his miraculous conversion. The truth about Jesus, this is uncomfortable, but it's true. You see this in the Gospels when Jesus interacts with religious leaders. The truth about Jesus could literally slap you in the face. You could experience unassailable signs from heaven concerning the legitimacy of the resurrection. Someone could come out with a report tomorrow and says, the resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ is true. We know that for a fact. All of that could happen, and even still, you would not understand and believe without the Holy Spirit's help. Paul gives us a hybrid analogy slash logical syllogism here in verses 11 through 13 that helps us make sense of things. He says, hey, Corinthians. You know how you are the only person who really knows your own thoughts and intuitions, etc.? You can see that in verse 11. You know how that's true. And by the way, I'm not sure that we know this in our day, given our penchant for telling other people that we know their true thoughts and motives, etc., better than they do. Of course, everybody has blind spots and we need help seeing them. 
but it is, let me say, incredibly uncharitable to go around saying or typing things like, well, he said so and such, but we all know what he really means is, or really thinks is, fill in the blank. No, you don't know. And honestly, that kind of mindset has, in my opinion, no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Hey, Corinthians, you know how you are the only person who really knows your own thoughts and your own intuitions, verse 11? Well, the same thing is true of God. Only God can know the mind of God. Thus our need, verse 12, for the Holy Spirit, who is himself God, to understand the mind of God, his secrets and his mysteries, and then give us understanding concerning the things freely given to us by God. Most importantly, the message of the cross. And not only do you need help understanding things, guess what? I need help teaching them to you, verse 13, because my human faculties are entirely insufficient here when it comes to imparting mysterious and spiritual truth. And you probably already knew that. You're sitting here thinking, this guy needs some help. Yes, I do. City church run far, far away from spiritual teachers who carry themselves with a sort of chutzpah that suggests they're not aware of their need for the Holy Spirit's help when they are teaching spiritual truths. Whatever they are teaching, no matter how smooth, no matter how powerful, no matter how charismatic they might be, they aren't teaching spiritual truths unless they have the Spirit's help. Conversely, we are looking for leaders who are bathed in humility and kindness because they're aware of their inadequacies and therefore they are depending upon the Lord for help. We would much rather sit under their teaching all day long, even if their speaking gifts are rather modest, instead of sitting under more engaging teachers who are strangers to the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's wonderful when a teacher is walking with the Spirit and an elite communicator. But at the end of the day, are we looking for entertainment or are we looking for spiritual growth? We all need help if we're going to get true wisdom. We need it to become followers of Jesus in the first place. That's the only way that natural people, verse 14, that spiritually blind people can possibly see. And once we're followers of Jesus, walking in step with the Spirit remains the only way to live faithfully in this world with wisdom and joy. Here's the problem, though. Functional Holy Spirit atheism, or at least agnosticism, is rather common. According to Edith Schaefer, her husband, who was pastor and author Francis Schaefer, if you've ever heard of him. According to Edith Schaefer, her husband, Francis, once asked her, Edith, I wonder what would happen to most churches and Christian work if we awaken tomorrow and everything concerning the reality and the work of the Holy Spirit and everything concerning prayer were removed from the Bible. And I don't mean just ignored, but actually cut out, disappeared. I wonder how much difference it would make. And then Edith goes on to say, and this is from a book she wrote about their lives, we concluded 
it would probably not make much difference in many board meetings and committee meetings, decisions, and activities. Does the Holy Spirit make much difference to you? One way to diagnose the true answer to this question is actually this matter of fascination that we've been talking about. Are the wonders of God, are the wonders of God more interesting to you than the latest conspiracy theories and the latest celebrity developments, the fattiest personality assessments, new age folk magic, the Florida Gators? Are the wonders of God more interesting to you than all of that? If not, for some of us, it may well mean that we're not followers of Jesus in the first place. And if that is true, might the Holy Spirit of God be nudging you a little bit these days? Might He be working on your heart, drawing you to Christ? If so, please do not put that off. You would much rather hear and respond now than 20 years from now, let me tell you. Respond in faith and behold a mystery revealed that is far more significant than any other secret or mystery, past, present, and future. And the Holy Spirit is far more powerful than the world's most spectacular UV light. And I googled that to try to make an illustration. I got wildly different answers, so just roll with that. The Holy Spirit is way stronger than whatever that light is, revealing things that no one or nothing else can see. Many of us, though, are followers of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit really does live in us. We're just really groggy. And we felt that even when we walked in this morning. We're kind, of, we're kind of asleep at the wheel and probably uncritically accepting the world's wisdom while we're at it. And therefore, we're, we're meandering toward, if not already in, spiritual valleys. And because we're drinking in the world's wisdom, we're increasingly sideways with fellow believers because we're not all that fascinated with Christ, who is, in fact, the one who unites us. And we're turning minor things into major things because we're actually kind of bored with the one who is the most major thing. Thus, our splintering into camps, into tribes. If all of this is sort of upsetting to us, and I hope it is if it's true of us, how might we reverse course and walk by the Spirit and have the mind of Christ? Verse 16. Because good news, having the mind of Christ, check this out, is ours for the taking by means of the Spirit if we would only walk with Him. A mindset in which, to the degree that we have it, verse 15, our subsequent wisdom is effectively unjudgeable by those without it. A mindset in which we can minister to the world with spiritual confidence, no matter our reception, even if we're martyred, that is by no means a referendum concerning the validity of our faith. To have the mind of Christ, you do not need to belong to some sort of super-secret Christian group. 
You do not need to acquire a spiritual decoder for three easy payments of $29.99. You do not need to acquire some kind of secret knowledge that surprise only one particular person on YouTube has access to. You just need the Spirit. Here's how we reverse course. Here's how we do it. We abide in Christ. You already know this. I'm telling you what you already know. We abide in Christ, the one who promised to send us the Holy Spirit in the first place. The Christ who, who loves you tremendously. Even if you are here this morning and you're discouraged, he is so gracious and his arms are open. He wants you to come toward him. And you know the major ways of doing this. They aren't secrets. Scripture reading and meditation and memory. Prayer. Fasting. Corporate worship through song and the preached word and the sacraments. Breaking bread with fellow believers and inviting them to speak honestly into your life. Living obediently, morally, and otherwise. An application of what you profess to believe. That's the one that often gets left out, in my opinion. Living sacrificially, employing your spiritual gifts in service of others in the household of God. And then one more thing, in addition to abide, we will do really well to remember the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, past, present, and future. To remember very powerful testimonies to that effect that show us the beauty and the grandeur of the Spirit's work and stir our affections for more of that work in our own lives. Therefore, we're going to close with this testimony from Paul Kings North. I did a testimony a couple Sundays ago, but I'm doing another one. Deal with it. Close with this testimony from Paul Kings North, 51-year-old British environmentalist and author. And this is a bona fide celebration, not so much of Paul, but of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in his life for the sake of our encouragement and joy. Check this out. Check out this move of the Holy Spirit. Growing up, Paul had a less than serious relationship with the church. In fact, as a teenager, he would sometimes accompany a small group of friends to a small neighborhood church in England and write things in the guest book like, I will destroy you and all of your works, ha, 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 and then they would sign it Satan. Eventually, after a season of exploration through the mountains of England and Wales with his dad, he became an environmental activist, considering himself also a Dawkins-esque atheist. But the environmental work actually gave him, as it turns out, this gnawing sense of transcendence, that there is more to this world than what meets the eye. So then in his words, and I'm just quoting him, I went searching then for the truth, but where to find it? Elders, saints, and mystics are notable these days for their absence. In their place we are offered a pick and mix spiritually, on sale in every market stall and pastel shaded hippie web portal. We can find dream catchers, a Celtic cross, a book about Tantra, a weekend drum workshop, and a pack of tarot cards with cats on them. And then, hey, Peso, you're ready for your personalized spiritual journey. On the other side, you will find no exhortation to sacrifice or denial of self. 
and certainly no battered and bleeding God-man calling you to pick up your cross and follow him. No, you will find instead the perfect manifestation of everything you wanted in the first place, the magnification of your will, not its dissolution. Expressive individualism disguised as epiphany, the reaching prayer of a culture that doesn't know how lost it is. And this was how I ended up a priest of the witch gods. The short version of this story is I joined my local Wiccan um, coven. Wicca is a relatively new occult tradition founded in the 1950s by the eccentric Englishman Gerald Gardner, who claimed that he had discovered the ancient remnant of a pre-Christian goddess cult. He was fibbing, but the practice he sewed together out of older, disparate parts is strangely cohesive, complete with secret initiatory rituals, a law book that can be copied only by hand by initiates, magical teachings, spell work, protective circles, and then at the heart of it all, the worship of two deities, the great goddess and the horned god. All initiated Wiccans are priests or priestesses of these gods. There are no laity. My coven used to do its rituals in the woods under the full moon. It was fun, and it made things happen. I discovered that magic is real. It works. Who it works for is another question. At last I was home where I belonged, in the woods, worshiping a nature goddess under the stars. I even got to wear a cloak. Everything seemed to have fallen into place until I started having dreams. I had known, I suppose, that the abyss was still there inside me, that what I was doing in the woods, though affecting, was at some level still play-acting. And then one night I dreamed of Jesus. The dream was vivid, and when I woke up, I wrote down what I had heard him say, and I drew what he had looked like. The crux of the matter was that he was to be the next step in my spiritual path. I didn't believe that or want it to be true, but the image and the message reminded me of something strange that had happened a few months before. My wife and I were out to dinner celebrating our wedding anniversary, when suddenly she said to me, you're going to become a Christian. And when I asked her what on earth she was talking about, she said she didn't know. She had just had a feeling and needed to tell me. My wife has this preternatural sensitivity that she always denies, and it wasn't the first time she had done something like this. It shook me. A Christian? Me? What could be weirder? After the dream, it began to make sense. Suddenly, I started meeting Christians everywhere. They were coming out of the woodwork, strangers emailing me out of the blue, priests coming to me for help with their writing. I found myself having conversations with friends I'd never known were Christian, who suddenly seemed to want to talk about it. It kept happening for months, Christ to the left of me, Christ to the right. It was unnerving. I turned away again and again, but every time I looked back, he was still there. One evening, I was sitting in the kitchen of the house in which our coven had its temple. We were about to go in and conduct an important ritual. As I got up to leave, I felt violently ill. I was dizzy. I was sick. I was lightheaded. Everyone noticed and fussed over me as I sat down, my face pale. I had an overpowering feeling that I should not go into that temple. I felt that I was being physically prevented from doing it. Someone had staged an intervention. And then after that, there was no escape. Like C.S. Lewis, I could not ignore the steady, unrelenting approach of him, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. How much later it was that I was finally pinned down, I don't remember. I was at a concert at my son's music school. We were in a hotel function room full of children ready to play their instruments and proud parents ready to film them doing it. I was just walking to my chair when I was overcome entirely. Suddenly, I could see how everyone in the room was connected to everyone else, and I could see what was going on inside them and inside myself. 
I was overcome with a huge and inexplicable love, a great wave of empathy for everyone and everything. It kept coming and coming until I had to stagger out of the room and sit down in the corridor outside. Everything was unchanged and everything was new. And I knew what had happened and who had done it. And I knew that it was too late. It had already happened. I had become a Christian. So are you being nudged like Paul? Not the apostle. Kings North. The sooner the better to hear and respond. Are you spiritually bored? Are you depressed? Remember the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember the work of the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people like Paul Kingsnorth. That you might be encouraged and that you might thirst for that spirit-filledness once again. That we might return to our abiding in Christ regardless of how we feel right now because of what we know lies beyond when we do abide. Amen.